I'll tell you, sometimes when I hear a sermon passage read aloud before I preach it, it's, uh, it's a little terrifying uh, to think that uh, that's what we're about to hear, and that's the words that we're about to deal with. We are going through the book of Revelation as a church, uh, so we're walking through the letters to the churches, and we're seeing in each letter that Jesus is dealing with something that's going on in the church. He typically has some praise for a church, and then he has some concern for each church. And this is the case for Thyatira. And the concern that Jesus has for the church in Thyatira could be really just put in one word, tolerance. Their tolerance. Alliance Defending Freedom International posted a news update on April 30th from Helsinki, Finland. The article says, imprisonment for posting a Bible, uh, quote, in a tweet is now a very real possibility in Finland. The Finnish prosecutor general has brought three criminal charges against a Finnish member of parliament. The former minister of the interior now faces two years of imprisonment for each alleged crime. The medical doctor, mother of five and grandmother of six, is accused of having engaged in, quote, hate speech for publicly voicing her opinion on marriage and human sexuality in a 2004 pamphlet for comments made in a 2018 TV show and most recently a tweet directed at her own church leadership. Police investigations began against Rasanen in June 2019. As an active member of the Finnish Lutheran Church, she addressed the leadership of her church and questioned its official sponsorship of an LGBTQ event called Pride 2019, and she accompanied her text with an image of a biblical passage. Somewhere along the way in Finland, there was a Lutheran church that began to first tolerate, took a first step of tolerance toward doctrine which is contrary to what Scripture says. Somewhere along the way, they begin to tolerate homosexuality as a belief system within their own church. Now, I want to say this morning, this is not to say that Christians should not tolerate anyone from the LGBTQ community at work or in our families or as neighbors But it is to say that somewhere along the line, this church began to accept that belief system as part of their church's belief system. How that happened, I don't know, but I think it would be likely to assume that it first came under the concept of love in their church. Regardless, this first tolerance, this first moment grew and grew until that Lutheran church became an official sponsor of the Finnish Pride 2019 event. And when Paiva Rasanen tweeted her views with an image of a biblical passage of Scripture directed at her own church, it proved to be too much. Friends, this is how a church moves from a little tolerance to embracing and soon then rejecting that which it fundamentally found true in the Bible. I liken it to this. We rescued a dog from Austin Shelter, Humane Society, I think two years or so ago now. And it's a dog. 
It does what dogs do. It has destroyed the peace and tranquility in our home. When we first brought the dog home, uh, the kids and I, we built a dog house out of some scrap wood in the backyard, and uh, there was a very strict rule. The dog stays outside. The dog does not come inside. The dog does not come inside just to say hi. The dog does not spend the night in the house. The dog sleeps in his dog house outside. Well, the first night we brought the dog home, it was in the 40s outside, and uh, my dear wife, who I'm going to throw under the bus right here, here it comes, she couldn't stand to leave that dog outside in the cold. I was heartless. I was cold. I did not care. She let the dog into our home. And needless to say, things have progressed ever since to the point where I woke up this morning with my feet sweating, trying to find a spot on my own bed because a 50-pound dog was laying on me. Well, just let him in for one night, and then you wake up, and he's in your bed. This is what it's like to go from little tolerance to embracing and welcoming and inviting in. This is the struggle in the church in Thyatira. They are tolerating the teaching and the celebration of the city worship, the local pagan worship. And the problem, listen, the problem is not that the church tolerates worship among pagans out there. The problem is not that they tolerate pagan worship down the street, but that it is in the church. When it comes to outside the church, the church is actually highly tolerant of worship in the world. A great example is that of a pastor named Bart Barber in First Baptist Church, Farmersville, where he pastors. In 2015, an Islamic community wanted to build a mosque, a Muslim cemetery, and an Islamic training center in Farmersville, Texas. That's a real town. The city was in an uproar, and many people vehemently opposed it, trying to get their building permits blocked in city council. But Pastor Bart Barber was clear. He said, tell me, please, how do you expect us to argue at the national level with a straight face that we believe in religious liberty for all people, while at the local level, we're running the Muslims out of town on a rail? I'm spending all week this week studying and collaborating with top lawyers in the United States in the field of religious liberty. He went on to say, I tell you, my friends, whatever the city government does against an Islamic training center today, they'll be doing it against Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches in 20 years. He says, mark my words And if you tell the city of Farmersville today that you want them to have and to exercise this sort of power, then your objections on that day are going to ring pretty hollow. As for me, Barbara says, I think the First Amendment is a pretty good thing. And I'm in favor of religious liberty for all Americans. That means anywhere I can build a church, the Muslims can build a mosque. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ is and should be the greatest advocate for religious freedom and religious liberty for our neighbors, for everyone. Maybe you've seen one of those coexist stickers on the back of a car. I think there's probably more per capita in Austin than other cities in Texas. 
It was actually first an image created by a Polish Warsaw-based graphic designer and entered into an international art competition. The coexist word is spelled, the C in the word is actually the Muslim crescent. The O is a perfect circle representing the Hindu Om symbol. The Jewish star of David is the X in coexist. The T is Christ. You get the picture. Understand, that's not a liberal agenda. That's actually a Christian perspective. As Christians, we defend the freedom of religion and the freedom of conscience. We're not afraid and we're not intimidated by having other religions freely practice in our society. We are a voice for tolerance in our land and in the world. But in another sense, we as a church are extremely, and we ought to be in faithfulness to Christ, extremely intolerant inside the church. The problem in Thyatira is not that they permitted pagan worship down the street. The problem is Thyatira mixed pagan worship with the worship of God. You see that in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, which Marilyn read for us. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. When it becomes the teaching and the seduction of the servants of Jesus to practice pagan worship with them, the church has gone from what it should do, which is tolerate worship in the world and the freedom of conscience, to now tolerating it in the church and embracing it as our own. And to teach about this, Jesus calls the false prophet in Thyatira this name, Jezebel. Jezebel. What do you know about Jezebel? Why does Jezebel matter so much that when Jesus is talking to the church in Thyatira, he brings up Jezebel from the Old Testament? I thought this was about end times and Thyatira facing all their enemies in Thyatira. Why are we talking about Jezebel, an Old Testament character? Jezebel today in our culture is a name often used to describe unvirtuous women, which is ironic because the name Jezebel actually means pure or virgin. People have often used it as a derogatory slang, but what was Jezebel about? Was she just some floozy in the Old Testament, some temptress to lead men into adultery? Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Jezebel is not merely a temptress. What Jezebel means through the Bible is much, much more than that, much worse. When Jesus addressed the church in Thyatira, he referred to Jezebel in order for us to understand all that Jesus meant and intended to draw into that conversation with Thyatira. We're going to go back and see the importance of Jezebel. We're going to begin in Exodus chapter 34. We're going to look in several passages in the Old Testament here for a moment, so prepare to flip a couple pages and read along with me and get some picture and context for what is going on when Jezebel comes on the scene. In Exodus 34, the people of God, Israel, have just been rescued from Egypt. 
powerfully, mightily by Yahweh, their God, the only God. Exodus chapter 32 and 33, the people of Israel build a calf and they bow down to that calf and they say, this calf saved us from Egypt. Praise God for this calf. Or I guess praise calf for the calf. I don't know how that works. In Exodus 34, God is going to renew his covenant with them and he's going to give them some instruction that's going to be repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34, verse 10 through 16, looking far forward to the time when they're going to actually get to the promised land that God promised to them and Abraham and that he promised Moses. Exodus 34, just pick up in verse 11. Exodus 34, verse 11 through 16. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all residents in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, their places of worship. Verse 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice." And you take of their daughters for your sons to marry them. And their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. That's the instruction. When you get to the land, no tolerance of foreign worship among Israel. None. Wipe it from the face of the earth in Canaan. Go with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Page 151 in your house Bibles. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. We're coming out of the 40 years of being in the desert right after what Moses said in Exodus 34. The whole generation is about to pass away. Moses is about to pass away. Deuteronomy is kind of Moses sending the people forward toward the promised land. And Moses repeats this and adds a little bit more specificity in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you. In other words, God gives you military victory. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Now that's on the Egypt side of the Jordan River. 
Moses gives this word. He's not allowed to cross over the Jordan. It becomes Joshua next who becomes the leader. Joshua leads them over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. He helps them defeat Jericho and many enemies. And then go with me to Joshua chapter 23. You should catch on. We're going to hear something similar here. This is some of Joshua's last words before the book of Judges when the people are instructed to actually obey God and cleanse the land. Joshua chapter 23, page 198. Begin with me in verse 9. Moses has said it twice. Now Joshua is handing off the torch to the judges and listen to what it says. Joshua 23, verse 9. For the Lord has, now do you see that? The Lord has driven out before you. Now we're in that process. It's happening. God has done it. Before you, great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. There is no nation that can overcome you. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations, the few of these nations that are left, to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. There's just a few pagan nations left. Don't cling to that remnant of them. Don't tolerate them. Don't make deals with them. Don't let your boys marry their little girls. By now, hearing this so often, Israel should be like that child who tells their parent, I know, Dad, you told me three times. I know, I know. And each time that this is spoken, the people of God agree to do what God has said. But then we come to 1 Kings chapter 16, page 298 in your house Bibles. 1 Kings 16. We are being introduced to a king named Ahab who's in the northern division of Israel now. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, the nation in the south, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all Who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of, see if this sounds somewhat familiar, Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal. And worshiped him. Keep reading. Verse 32. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built 
in Samaria, their land. And Ahab made an Asherah, the very thing they were supposed to tear down. He built one. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. Quick side note, go back and read the end of Joshua chapter 6, where Joshua defeats and tears down Jericho and lays a curse to anyone who would ever dare rebuild it. And Ahab does. He laid its foundation, Jericho's foundation, at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. In other words, Joshua said, if you come and you build up Jericho, it's going to cost you your children. And that's exactly what it cost Ahab. Listen, so often, God is the one who sounds harsh and intolerant of people. God doesn't have any grace God doesn't have any patience. But God warned the people time and time and time again, don't give yourself over to worship in Baal. Don't join in their eating of their food sacrificed to gods. Don't join in their sexually immoral practices. Don't go to their temples. Don't bow down to them. Don't offer your children as a sacrifice. Don't give your sons or your daughters over to marriage. It's going to draw away your hearts over and over for years and years If we're reading our Bibles from Exodus to Deuteronomy to Joshua and 1 Kings, we would not find ourselves saying, what is wrong with God? Why doesn't God show some tolerance? We would look at this and we would say, what in the world is wrong with Israel? What's going on with his people that he saved and cleansed and gave the law and continues to protect? What's wrong with them? They are the ones who have turned on God. This is why Christians, for example, should not date or be engaged or marry unbelievers. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, don't be unequally yoked. Don't, don't be tied together like two oxen with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. When Ahab married Jezebel, the next thing it says is that Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. The problem is not just that they walked down the aisle together, but it meant that they went to pagan church together. Ahab, king of God's people, even built places of worship for Baal himself. He built them himself. Not to mention the fact that he rebuilt Jericho, as we said. How does Jesus Jesus assume or summarize the problem of Ahab and Jezebel when he's talking to the church in Thyatira? It's tolerated. You tolerated Jezebel. Ahab tolerated Jezebel. Let her in, gave her space, brought her into marriage, gave her children, gave her family, gave her the house, gave her the food, gave her, welcomed in as one of their own. 
That after Moses and Joshua and the kings were all instructed, don't tolerate the people of Canaan, remove them from the land, do not intermarry, don't intermingle with your worship with them. But Ahab married into Baal worship. Listen, no persecution, no military power could ever overcome Israel. But persuasion might. No enemy of Israel could ever destroy Israel. But if Israel worships other gods, God will. This is what we see in the book of Revelation when Jesus is talking to the church. One of the promises all through the book of Revelation is your victory as Christians over every enemy. Egypt and Pharaoh and Assyria and the Philistines, they're not a threat to you, Israel. Go on into the land. They are no th- I will wipe them out for you. I will con- one against a thousand. That's good odds for me. We're fine. Rome is not your greatest threat, Christian. God will take care of Rome. Russia is not your greatest threat, Christian. God will take care of Russia. Go to the end of Revelation, sermons to come. Babylon, Satan himself, all of the enemies of God will one day fall when the King of kings and Lord of lords returns. Don't worry about them. The promise to Israel and to the promise to the church in Thyatira is that same promise to us. Look back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. In our text, to Thyatira, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes Jezebel, the one who overcomes temptation and holds fast, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end... To him I will grant authority over nations, and he will rule with them, rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even I myself have received authority from even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is what it means in this passage for Jesus to have bronze feet like burnished bronze. It's a recollection to Daniel, and it means military might. No one can stand against Jesus. But the enemies are not a military might. The enemies are not coming with military force. They're coming with the force of temptation. Go back a few verses, Revelation 2, 19 through 20. I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. But I have this against you. Look at what's coming against them. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's the influence of Jezebel. Coming along saying, I'm a prophetess. I have a word. I have something from God. I have something that is revelation that you need to hear. Something from God himself. I have some insightful teaching for you. 
You might have heard some good things from your pastor. You might have heard some good things from sermons or some books you read, but I have some insightful things, things that Jesus even calls the deep things of Satan, those things which claim to be even deeper than the things of God, seducing the servants of Jesus, putting them into a trance because of their teaching, because of their superiority that they seem to offer and joining her in worship. Practicing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols seems to be representative of unfaithfulness to Christ by way of sound doctrine. King Jehu, which we're going to meet a little bit more detail later in 2 Kings, refers to Jezebel's influence over Israel as whorings and sorcery. Now She married Ahab, but her idolatry and her Baal worship was referred to as whoring. So when Jesus says they are being led to sexual immorality and to eating food sacrificed to idols, that means they're following along with their worship. That's how it applies to us. What would the church have influence, been influenced to do by Jezebel? It's honestly not actually that clear. Commentators disagree what actually it is they might have been tempted most to do. Sexual morality, eating food sacrificed to idols actually is extremely possible, even likely. But what does that mean for us? What would it, be, what would it mean to tolerate the teaching of Jezebel alongside the teaching of of Jesus. In a general sense, it means that one day we give the platform to the teaching of Jesus from God's word, and the next day we give the platform to the teaching of Jezebel. We give space in our life groups to talk about Bible, then we give space in our life groups to talk about what we want to talk about and what we think is right. And that book that we read the other day, and that article that we saw, and that video that we saw that sounds good and might even be an attempt at Christianity, but actually undermines the gospel itself. Friends, in the church, we are not permitted. We do not have authority to welcome in outside teaching into Jesus' church. And we should be cautious that this could come to us in the form of political alignment, a political hope, a political claim to truth and superiority, a political hope that if you join this political camp, everything is going to go well and we'll overcome our enemies together. And a drawing to that more than a drawing to Jesus and to the gospel and to Jesus as king of a spiritual realm that will one day become physical over the whole earth. This could be a theological message, someone suggesting there's a deeper truth in God's word. There's another way to understand God's word. Come over here, let me show you a little bit better way than that old crusty way you've been taught your whole life. This could be come to us in the form of activism, Voices that suggest to us that groups or movements are more important than really being a Christian and believing in Jesus and loving your neighbor. Voices that says being a Christian is, is one thing, but if you, really, if, you, if you really want to be faithful, you need to come over to this movement, into this camp, into this special purpose. This could be books that you buy at Christian bookstores. I'm very thankful to have found this week that I can't find books by Joe Alstein. T.D. Jakes or Joyce Myers in our Lifeway bookstore as we used to be able to do. But you have to be careful. We might pick up a book that's on the Christian bestseller list and read it and find out there's nothing Christian about. I've got a list in my brain I can just shoot off right now. Go to Apple Music, Christian section of music. No, 
Not always. We have to be careful what we tolerate in the church when it comes to what is taught and believed. It will come under the guise of being our friend in seduction, in terms of profiting, in terms of teaching. This is why, for example, when you become a member of Millwood Baptist Church, you go through our membership class. One of the most important things we do is read through our entire statement of faith out loud, word by word. We did skip a couple of sections quickly yesterday, but that's, I'll explain that later. That's part of being the Southern Baptist Convention. We read carefully. We took an hour and a half to go through our statement of faith. What, is, what, do, we, what do we put on paper? What do we believe? What do we mean by the things that we say? Because we're trying to be very careful that we believe what Scripture says. There's no way we're going to say, like, well, we're better than that church down the street, and, you know, our statement of faith is way better than the Presbyterians. They're the weird, crazy people. We're the right ones. Well, that's not what we mean. We're trying to be faithful to what Scripture says. We're pursuing solidarity with Christ and making an effort at not tolerating the teaching of the world or Jezebel in our church to some people, I think it might still sound harsh. Why would we be so intolerant of teaching and of Jezebel and those coming into our church claiming to be prophets and having a word? Why would we be so cautious? That sounds harsh. It sounds unforgiving. It sounds unwelcoming. Two ways I want to consider this. One is that we inherently know that all tolerance is not bad. We all know this inherently. Have you ever been to a restaurant that you think is a fairly reputable restaurant and someone brings you out a glass of water and that glass has lipstick around the rim of the glass from some other customer? Surely the good high road to take would be let's be tolerant Let's just let this be, right? Not when I'm going to dinner. I'm going to tell the waitress or waiter as kindly as I can, can I please get a non-lipstick cup, please? What if they bring you a salad? Because you should order one of those every now and then with your steaks. What if they bring you a salad and there's a roach in your salad? Just tolerate, right? Right? It's, it's okay, right? You, you'll, you'll, I mean, there's, it's protein. It's good for you. Just go, just go with it. How many roaches do we tolerate in salads? Zero. Someone said it. Thank you. I was making sure we're all on the same page. We don't always agree that tolerance is a bad thing. We don't tolerate our babies playing with snakes. We don't tolerate poison in our water. We don't tolerate wolves that want to hang out with the sheep. That's not love. That kind of tolerance is actually unloving and unkind and unwise. Not all tolerance is bad. So if we come to that question, then we have to ask at least what is right and wrong tolerance? What do we tolerate and not? Secondly, we have to consider where Thyatira is in the gospel. Think just for a moment what happened or where Jezebel comes into the picture in the story of Israel. It's not as if God showed up and said, listen, I will love you guys 
And I'll make you guys my people as long as you do what's right. My love for you, my choosing you is solely dependent on you choosing me. That's not what happened. What happened in the Bible is God showed up to a man named Abraham in the middle of the desert out of nowhere, the son of an idol worshiper, and said, I'm going to make you into my people. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make your people many, many people. And I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to bless you. And everyone who curses you, I'm going to curse. Everyone who blesses you, I'm going to bless. And he foresaw to Abraham, he foretold the 400 years in Egypt. And by his sovereignty and power, he came into Egypt and he rescued his people out of Egypt and took them away from their oppressors, brought them to himself, provided them food and water and protection from their enemies and said, you think this is good? I've got a land over here, a garden flowing with milk and honey and things you can't even imagine and that's where I'm taking you. And along the way, the chosen, rescued people fell into the trap of Jezebel. God had saved them, made them his own, and on their way, some fell because of Jezebel. This is what it means to be a Christian And to have this position as a Christian with Christ like in Thyatira, God doesn't come to us and say, if you will just do good, you can be a Christian. God comes to us and says, I love to forgive sinners. Everybody in the church is a sinner saved by grace. You used to be following the prince of the power of the earth, satanic ways. You used to be on your own. You used to be dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, brought us to life. He forgave our sin by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And Jesus raised from the dead to conquer sin and death forever. The question is, will some of us who claim Christ and believe in Jesus now Will we be lost to Jezebel along the way? Will we tolerate Jezebel and Baal along the way and so forsake our own place in Christ? Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23 says it like this, that he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, Christians, Jesus died in order to present you holy and blameless before him, above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't shift. Don't shift from the gospel. Don't shift from Jesus' word by tolerating Jezebel, a prophetess, a teacher with greater insight, someone who might seduce you away from God's word. What should the church do? Four things. Number one, take 
Jesus' judgment very seriously. Consider that Jesus, our Savior, our risen Lord, the one who died for our sins, does not take pagan worship among his church lightly. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. To the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. What does that mean? What do those eyes mean? Look in chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. Look at the next few verses down. What's he going to do in regards to Jezebel? Behold, I, Jesus, will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus himself is coming with recompense according to our tolerance or intolerance in the church. His flaming eyes mean that there is no hiding from him. There is no secretly loving or worshiping or fellowshipping with Jezebel. There's no secret sexual immorality. There's no secret eating food sacrificed to idols. Jesus will come and show he is the one who searches mind and heart. What do those burnished bronze feet mean? Look down at Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. As easy as you could crush a potted plant. Even as I myself received authority from my Father. Those burnished bronze feet mean that Jesus has authority over all nations and none can conquer him. None can stand in his way. And those who are faithful to Christ until the end will be rulers with him when he overcomes all nations. God instructed Israel to not tolerate the nations and their worship in the promised land just like God did not tolerate sin in the garden and will not tolerate it in heaven. But Ahab married and worshiped with Jezebel. What was God's response? How did God respond to Ahab and Jezebel? You can go back and read all the way from 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 10 and see what all God does. But you can look in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, page 316. Helping us take seriously the judgment of Christ on his own church, those who claim his name. In 2 Kings 9 and 10, we see the removal of all the remnants of Jezebel. Anything that had to do with Jezebel, God gets rid of it. In 2 Kings 10, you can look there and see the headings. Just look at the headings. King Jehu slaughters the descendants of King Ahab. How Fully does King Jehu slaughter the descendants of King Ahab until he wiped them out, chapter 10, verse 17. Until he wiped them out. Next section, King Jehu strikes down all the prophets of Baal. Strikes them all down. No tolerance. Next, King Jehu tears down the house of Baal and he burns it. Look at 2 Kings 10. I didn't have the verse there. 2 Kings 10, he demolished the house of Baal and he made it into a latrine until this day. 
What about Jezebel herself? 2 Kings 9, verse 30. 2 Kings 9, verse 30, page 316. When Jehu, this new, raised up, more righteous king, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And what did she do? She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. And then he went and ate and drank. Just went and had a meal. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, that in the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, no one will recognize this is Jezebel. This is the nearly unbearable tenacity by which God responds to Israel's tolerating Jezebel, false worship, and we ought to have the same. This account of Jezebel is not to impress children at bedtime or to give kids at summer camp cabin something to talk about with nightly devotion. This is for believers, adult grown men and women, to remember that we may be children of Abraham, we may have been saved from Egypt and our enemies, but what happens if we shift from the gospel and we give in to Jezebel along the way? Take Jesus' judgment seriously. Secondly, do not excuse tolerance on the basis of other works. Revelation chapter 2, verse 19 Jesus says, I know your works and your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. It seems like there's a chance here for Thyatira to be thinking, we're really good at these things as a church. We're good at loving. We're good at faith. We're good at service projects. And we're good at enduring some hardships. But don't excuse tolerance on the basis of other works well, you know, we're we're really kind of a church that's really good at this. It's not a big deal if we're just not so great at this. We're a really loving church. We're like a family. So we're not going to be too harsh on anyone who comes in as a prophet or a teacher with something else. Don't excuse tolerance on the basis of other works. Number three, remove Jezebel. Remove Jezebel. Christians are to remove false prophets and teaching from their church, from their libraries, from their rooms, from their houses, of course, unless you have things on hand for academic purposes. I'm not trying to start a book burning, per se. But get Jezebel out. No tolerance of those prophets who have been warned and had time to repent and don't, like Jesus says. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13 to the church in Corinth. It's not those who are inside the church, or is it not those who are inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That is, if you must, practice church discipline as we refer to it. Remove those who are opposing the gospel by teaching their false lies and perversions from the church. Do not call them the church. In your life groups, be patient, be kind, be loving, but don't tolerate Reader's Digest version of theology or personal opinions or Facebook theology and allow it to pass as authoritative. Stick to the Word of God. Remove everything else. Fourth, hold fast. Hold fast to what you have, to the gospel of Christ. Revelation chapter 2, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who are not following Jezebel, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, these higher things, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Friends, listen, if you're clinging to the gospel, you're fighting against sin, you're rejecting false doctrine, Jesus comes to you today and says, listen, I don't lay on you any other burden. Just hold fast what you have until I come. You keep holding fast until I come. Sometimes the best peace you can have is simply holding fast to Jesus and enduring as a Christian. Sometimes it's good just to lay your head on your pillow at night and go, there are so many temptations, so many frustrations, so many wicked, evil things and losses and pain in the world, but I rest in this. I think I'm a Christian. I believe God's Word, I think Jesus came to die for my sins, that he raised from the dead, and he will one day bring me home forever. And when I read God's word, I try not to add to it. I try not to take away from it. I'm just holding on. Hold fast until he comes. It may not be popular. It may go to prison for tweeting what the Bible says about homosexuality. Jesus says to those who are not taking Jezebel's medicine, just keep holding, keep holding fast until I come. When temptation comes to take a hold, temptation comes for you to take a hold of something else, just keep the gospel in both hands. Hold tight. Christians, don't look down on weaker Christians among you. Don't look down on those who are weak and struggling. It may be that they are not as zealous as you are about your pet project or something they might not have as charismatic, as charismatic of gifts as you have. They might not be as mature as you are. But are they holding fast to Christ? Are they refusing to give in to Jezebel? Praise God. Are they learning to grow as they can? Praise God. Christ does not lay any other burden on them. We should not either. The prize for the one who conquers, Jesus says, the one who holds fast, chapter 2, verse 28, I will give him the morning star. It's difficult to pin down exactly what's meant by the morning star, but consider that it was common knowledge in Thyatira that Roman emperors claimed to be descended from Venus. 
whom they considered the morning star. Venus shines in the morning like a star before the sun rises. That works alongside the idea that the morning star could allude to the fact that all those who are, in, who are wise and remain wise in God in Daniel 12 will shine like stars. But consider, consider the prize of this star. You remember Balaam from last week? This prophet who would only say what God said. He would only tell King Balak what God said. He wouldn't curse Israel. I'll just say what God says. Numbers chapter 24, listen. Balaam, this prophet, though he would be unfaithful in the future, preaches the word of God as a faithful prophet in this moment. He tells King Balak, who wants to curse Israel, come and I will let you know what this people, what Israel, will do to your people, Moab, in the latter days. And here's Balaam's final oracle from Numbers 24. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, who is a true prophet, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, he knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom will be dispossessed. See also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. That one who receives the scepter, the one who would crush the enemies, break down the sons of Sheth, he's the morning star. Jesus says it this way in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, the very end of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Hold fast. Trust your future rule and reign with Christ, who is the morning star. Give no space to Jezebel. Don't shift from the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for today. Thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fellowship here, uh, the laughter, the noise of talking coming in the foyer. Father, thank you for time together to hear your word. We know that we will face temptation to shift from your word, to shift from the gospel, to welcome in, to tolerate into our church, into our own minds, into our families, teaching which is contrary to your word, an opportunity to worship false gods. Would you give us this week's strength to say no? Would you help us understand your severity and the hope of the coming morning star? Would you help us this week, Father, to love you more than popularity in the world? Would you help us to have wisdom, Father? 
Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.